777 with me. I seem to have lost him. We were just speaking a moment ago. Well, anyway, how is everyone doing out there? I'm sure he'll come back in a moment. Let me. Check All right. What? Well, there we are. I don't are. know what's. Yeah, I don't know what's going on, Jason. <clears throat> I'm getting double audio. Hold on. You got me. Perfectly. All right. Did your double audio stop? I, I'm still got double audio. I'm hearing what you said a minute ago, so something's jacked. Oh, you probably have YouTube on it, and there's a delay. No, I just killed all my YouTube windows. It sounds exactly like I am getting YouTube, though. No, I killed the window, too. Hmm. Maybe refresh your windows? I, I don't know. We could always disconnect and reconnect real quick. I'm going to hang up on Skype and call you back. All right. Let's do that. All right, everyone, hang Ooh. tight. Let's see. Okay, I'm still running. All right, everything looks okay. We'll just add Crow back in momentarily. So, there we go. All right, that looks okay. Okay, I'm assuming everybody's still hearing me. Hello to everyone. I don't want to type a million things out, but I am reading through the chat. Hello to all you wonderful people. Thank you for being here. Today we're going to do a little bit of a review of episode 200 because a lot of folks seem to really be into that. And uh, there's probably some questions too. As a matter of fact, speaking of questions, I'm trying to figure out a way that we can take calls in the live stream. Oh, there's Crow. Give me one second, everybody. All right. Let's see how that works. All right. I figured out what's going on. I had my YouTube channel open, but it did not have this address, but it picked up the audio from the other window which is bizarre to say gotcha. the least that was what i was strongly suspecting yeah i did that the first time i did this too and couldn't figure it out for about a few moments well, i was in a i was in a separate browser so it was across a different browser that was logged in that grabbed me um anyhow hello everybody sorry for the snafu um you have to say all right man yeah all right man there it is better <laughs> late than never <laughs> um, I understand the good gentleman over at Globebusters referred a bunch of people into us, so thank you guys for that. Um, what do we got for openers here? Well, I was starting to tell everybody that uh, we're going to do a kind of a review-ish, as it were, of episode 200 because a lot of people seem to really, really like it. And there probably are a lot of questions regarding it and how it ties into a lot of the previous work we've done. But we got an outstanding response on it, and I was really happy to see that. Yeah, it was a very successful episode, and more than that, from my point of view, it's nice when we can go back across so many previous episodes and tie it all back uh, to the same hub that we've been harping on for so long. By the way, I see Bob just joined us. Thank you so much for uh, shouting us out and getting folks to come over here right after you guys just finished. And we listened, to, Rose and I listened to a bunch of your stream today. Really cool stuff. Crow, I think you would have liked it. Uh, Getting very sciencey and trying to dissect stuff. It was very, very awesome. Science. Science. Um, yeah, thing of the past Gravitics. these days, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyhow, uh, we do have a couple videos we can play, but I figured we'd address uh, a little more of the science fiction idea. And by the way, um, Jason and I were kind of up late last night looking at New Yorker. You know the New Yorker magazine? Looking at the covers, very telling. Uh, going back, looking through the New Yorker covers, tying it to 2001, all kinds of stuff going on there. But what got us started on it is Back to the Future. Everybody knows why Back to the Future was made and what it's pre-echoing. But very few people know that the same director, Zemeckis, made another film exactly 30 years later, which matches the time travel distance in Back to the Future uh, in 2015. So 30 years in real time or in the real world, um, what is it called, The Wire? Is that right, Jason? Man on a Wire? The Wire? The Walk, I think. The Walk. Um, and anyhow, that guy that's supposed to be Philip Petit is actually dressed identically to Marty McFly. So there's an absolute crossover there. And that's what we were starting to look at a little more carefully. And as we were digging into it, of course, we started looking at Doctor Who. And... Um, found that it was launched on the day or basically the day after uh, the JFK nonsense, but 
yeah, we've been busy. By the way, I found another tie-in, and that's with uh, Blade Runner. Did you know that Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, is taking place of Nove- in November of 2019? So there's another 9-11 encode? So wait a minute. What's the, what's the real year it's supposed to be? In the beginning of the first Blade Runner, it yep. says Los Angeles, November 2019. So there's another 9-11 encode that I picked up on when I rewatched it the other night. It never ends, man. It just never ends. But there is a really bizarre story being told between Back to the Future and The Walk or whatever that other 2015 film is. And what got us started on it is we went to go look at New Yorker covers and we found basically a black and white cover for September of The New Yorker where there's just like this tightrope guy, but there's no tightrope. And on the back is the same image with the same tightrope guy with no buildings there, the footprints of where the buildings used to be there, and it looks like he's tightrope walking on the road that comes off the bridges or something. We'll have to dig into that. There's a story to be told. Yeah, Crow and I work like this, by the way, if anybody uh, is curious. Sometimes we'll just find something interesting, and then we'll start chasing that dragon, trying to catch its tail. Yeah, um, someone's asking... uh, I'm not going to get much into the snafu with the Mars occultation thing, um, but Edmonton came into the story is because it's. I thought that's where I had Stellarium set to check the chances to see if it was even feasible. But as it turns out, not only was I not in Edmonton, I was in Providence and an hour off. I have no idea how it happened. Um, I've had this problem with Stellarium before, so it could be user error. It could be some kind of snafu thing with the location. Uh, in Stellarium because I literally shut down the program, went back about 40 minutes later, checked it again from what I thought was Edmonton, and then by the time S-Frog and others realized the mistake I'd made, I realized it was checked from Providence. So not only was I 3,000 miles off West Canada, I was also an hour off, actually more than that if you want to add the time difference. So that's all I'll say about all that snafu. Yeah, it happens. Whatever. So anyway, the, like we said, this last week was episode 200, and uh, that's a lot of content. Let's start with that. <laughs> we've, it is. We've done, I, and I've been there for most of them. I think I've, I've not done somewhere around oh, 20 or 20? something. 20? Yeah, 20-some. And yeah. it was kind of spotty. I, I was, a couple, couple of them in, I, w- I was with you, and then it was like off and on until, I, I don't even remember anymore. Rose probably knows, but it, into the 20s, it, it became the thing, <clears throat> and... Um, Yes, everybody's talking about the Flat Earth Rocket Man dying. Yes, everybody's talking about that guy. I'm highly suspicious of that whole thing, although I don't know enough about it to make an accurate call. But the whole thing, the guy seemed like, honestly, kind of a jackass uh, from what little I saw of him, but I don't want to make too much of a judgment because I don't know that much. Yeah, it might be better to hedge your bet. I don't know anything about it, but if they're claiming someone died, um, then I'm going to even know less about it. Yeah. But yeah, that's the big. That was the big talk. It looks a little suspicious, but who knows, really? And it's 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 not even worth talking about anyway. Like, what, what are you gonna do if someone passed away? Someone passed away. That's terrible for their family, of course. <clears throat> so speaking of the whole sci-fi thing, um, when Jason and I were doing post research after episode two hundred, one of the things that we were looking at was uh, Doctor Who because we were talking about the gender bend they did, of course, uh, under the thirteenth actor or the 13th version of Doctor Who is when they brought the girl in uh, who comes on the show and says 10 minutes ago I was a guy doing the transgender warp as they love to do so so much so often here. But uh, I was unaware, first of all, I, I was under the impression that the BBC had gone public in the 90s or something, which it did not. Um, and we looked it up. It's not just government funded. It's, it's funded by multiple governments. But to get back to the point, Doctor Who is claimed to have launched on the 23rd of 1963 in November, which is a day after the JFK nonsense. But what's weird about it is they claim it started uh, 80 seconds late. And I was trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, Does anyone in Britain, uh, is anyone listening in Britain, back in the 60s, did you guys have a television sign-off like we did in the United States? When it got to midnight or somewhere close to midnight, They'd play the Star Spangled Banner, and then they'd sign off the TV all night. Did that happen in Britain? 
um, is what I'm asking. If it did happen in Britain, then I can start to put together why they're claiming it started 80 seconds late. Late, because that would mean they went off the air, came on the next morning, the day after the JFK nonsense, probably announced JFK, which put them 120 seconds or a minute and 20 seconds behind. Um, but I'm trying to work that out because I think it is another huge story to be told that they launched Doctor Who that has been so successful basically within 24 hours of the JFK thing. Then we, what was it that we took apart? What was the time, Jason? Oh, it was the launch. It was the GMT time, launch time of Doctor Who, mm -hmm. uh, which encoded 9-11. Yeah. Two ways, two ways to Sunday. Yeah. So there's all that. Yeah, that whole thing is, is a little wonky uh, with, the, with the timing. And of course, because of the JFK thing, they ended up showing the, uh, the first episode again the following week. So I guess they really wanted to give it a good launching. <laughs> Yeah, I see someone, Phil Jones, is telling me that, uh, I think he's telling me that in Britain they did the sign-off, but there was apparently a little girl with balloons. <laughs> that's, that's a bit interesting. Well, that's what, definitely did she different than, the than old or Lori. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure why a little girl with balloon signs. Well, it was worse for us. We got the Star Spangled Banner, but people have taken versions of that clip apart to show that the verbatim language from the film They Live, like Obey and things like that. Oh, yeah, I were, have the clip. That's yeah, subliminally, <laughs> subliminally put in to the sign-off every night while everyone was hypnotized in front of their television. It's unreal, man. Yeah, the clip that Wayne and I did that on one of the, the live streams that you, you weren't with us on, and it was either the 60s or 70s the clip is from, I forget. But yeah, you slow it down, and there it is. It's, it's They Live, baby. Well, not only that, after that got outed, um, there was a big effort to make it look like some YouTuber faked it. Um, and people went back to other sources to prove that it wasn't faked, um, which is ironic because in the 70s, when I was in school, there was all of a sudden this big push against subliminal messaging and advertising. And the examples they were citing was things like alcohol ads where they would write sex or show a penis airbrushed into the ice. But it's ironic um, because now we know that was going on. So must have been people in the know getting fed up with the subliminal messaging. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll have to, maybe Mark Devlin can help us with that because he's, he's somewhere around 50 years old. So he'll be old enough to be able to tell us exactly how they ran their programming. I mean, they only have four bloody channels. <laughs> Devlin, Devlin just pinged us today. We're going to be doing another show with Devlin. He, we should drop the bomb he dropped on us. So Devlin's research um, most recently, it's okay for me to say this, don't you think, Jason? Yeah, I should think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, he found that Harrison Ford was a uh, stagehand when he was very young for The Doors. 1968. So, Yeah, 1968. So Harrison Ford was getting his stage training with The Doors as Jim Morrison was helping launch the counterculture, which would break the family unit and drug the bejesus out of the next three generations, while Jim Morrison's father was making up lies to start the Vietnam conflict. And there's more. <laughs> there's there's always more. What what was the other? Oh, yeah. Um, well, George Lucas got his start as, as one of right. the cameramen for the Rolling Stones during the Ultima, the whole thing that where that where that uh, young man fake. was killed. Fake, fake, fakety fake. Ultima, where they build, you know, they did their three days of peace and love. And, um, oh, look, uh, a half a million or they used to say a million fake people came together for Woodstock and it was all peace and love course they had to do Altamont but Altamont is like a triple-edged sword one of the things Altamont is doing at the end of the 60s is saying guess what peace and love is over boys and girls yeah, we're going it was, it was to the end of 1969 so here's that switching of the decades thing that we're always talking about that's right um, they're they're pulling the lever so of course uh, Mick Jagger's going to hire the Hell's Angels for security because that because that that's a good idea possibly go right it's ridiculous for um, beer money and, and actually <laughs> Actually, what's ironic about that is there is film. I don't know if they actually show the supposed murder that I don't accept. I've um, watched it, and but you can kind of see it. It's not. You gotta wonder if that was Lucas filming that, don't you? Uh, supposedly, his footage did not make it in. He was one of the secondary cameramen, and his was not used, according to the mainstream. Ah, uh, well, anyhow, but he was present and was to witness show. to it. And it always makes me, you know, growing up in Southern California, all the people I know who sold everything they owned and went up to Hollywood so they could be famous in movies, 
and I feel sorry for them because, I mean, it just goes to show you uh, if people ever do get in from the outside, it's a very rare thing. A very, very rare thing. And as you can see here, Mr. Harrison Ford, which we were led to believe previously, if I'm not mistaken, was a carpenter that some director just happened to recognize or some nonsense as the story goes. But now we're starting to see the real truth of it. He was trained under the doors uh, to get familiar with how stages work and all that, uh, as was Lucas with the Rolling Stones. Never ends. Yeah, Harrison didn't really get big, big until he did the uh, fil film in the early 70s with George Lucas. Not Star Wars, but American Graffiti. And then, of course, when Lucas was doing uh, testing, casting calls for Star Wars, he was having his buddy Harrison read parts against other actors. And the, so the story goes that he couldn't find anybody that he liked as Han Solo as much as Harrison Ford. So he ended up getting the role. Yeah. Um, well, you can actually go back. Um, there's a there's a group of about five or six directors, which are the changing of the guards in the late 60s, early 70s. And these are going to be the new power movement in Hollywood. It's Spielberg. It's Lucas. It's uh, it's Nicholas Cage's family. What Coppola. the hell? Uh, Cop Francis Coppola. Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. Francis Ford Coppola. I, I can't remember them all off the top of my head. Kubrick's on the outskirts. Well, Kubrick um, is uh, directly tied with Lucas. He was mentoring him to a degree. Right. He was almost a little bit old guard and a little bit getting the new guys in. But, you know, it all changes with Spielberg because he, he basically invents the blockbuster and ruins cinema at the same time <laughs> where it becomes a commercial concern. You know, the quality of what you're doing no longer matters. It's how many butts you can put in seats and how big your numbers can get. Um, but you can see the actors and American Graffiti is a perfect example looking at all the first time bit parts of those people. And of course you have the little girl there. What's her name from the mama's, the, the Phillips girl? Yes. Um, one day at a time girl you guys know who i'm talking about who later comes out as an adult saying that her father had sex with her and yeah. she took drugs because yeah. they need their hatred and fear porn right michelle phillips no it's the young girl um i can't think of her name she was on one day at a time but that's got to be one of her earliest roles dreyfus is in there ron howard it's just they're coalescing the people that are going to be the fodder for the next generation and they're training up their cameramen and directors uh you can see it it's plain as day it's all insider baseball from my point of view Mackenzie phillips Mackenzie there phillips, it is there we go thank you thank you sue um and it wasn't too long ago i don't know was it in the 2000s i don't remember whether it was the 90s or the 2000s she puts out some tell-all book or nonsense after her father apparently dies uh, he maybe he's living on mason island who the hell knows um but <laughs> then it's all about i had incest with my father mick yeah. jagger slept with me when i was six you know just the typical hate-filled kind of fear porny i was a drug addict at 12 kind of thing uh that these people bring us to pollute our world and to pollute the human minds so that nobody can possibly lift up to a higher degree at least that's my point of view on all that yeah it's <laughs> You know, it's kind of funny with Harrison Ford. Uh, think about what kind of darling he became for Hollywood. I mean, he played some of the biggest roles ever. He was in, obviously, Star Wars as Han Solo. He was Indiana Jones and, and is going to be again because they're supposed to make a fifth one, which, wow, that doesn't sound like a great idea, but whatever. And, of course, uh, what's considered one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, he played Rick Deckard in Blade Runner and then also came back for the sequel. So he's... You know, for someone who likes to complain about sci-fi, he seems to do an awful lot about it. And like Flynn, Coco Gin, and not only that, Globusters is pointing out a pertinent point with Valerie Bertinelli. We used to call her Valerie Pert and Smelly. Um, it's, uh, it, it's a hell of a thing because you're looking at the Phillips kid, who's the mamas and the papas, and John Phillips can be shown as one of the handlers for the counterculture and the drugging out of most of the world that got involved in the counterculture. So with Ken Kesey, the Phillips dude, who's the father of the girl we're talking about here, um, that starts. But lo and behold, she's later on a sitcom with Valerie Bertinelli, who ends up marrying Eddie Van Halen. The last name should tell you all you need to know anyhow, Van Halen. Um, if you just look where they grew up and where they came from, um, it's bloodline. It's what it is. I mean, I, I don't think you can argue that there's not talent there, but there's always talent there. But I would suggest, here's what I would suggest. And th the vast majority of us, not all of us, 
But the vast majority, when we were three or four years old, if our parents pulled us aside and said, we're going to do everything we can to musically incline you or to teach you to dance or to help you play violin at an insane level. And that's going to be your main gig in life, by the way. We're going to get the best teach. You know, I imagine a ton of people could be talented at a very high level. Um, I'm just saying, because that's always the catch is people can't get over. Um, Prince is an insider. Well, how can that be? He's so talented. Eddie Van Halen's an insider. How can that be? He's so talented. Yeah, they're talented, but they were groomed for what they're doing, of course. Well, the thing you can also think about is they really got the hang of this stuff in the 60s. And a lot of that stuff was going on in the background. So by the time you, you see that the changeover in the seventies, they've really got things flowing in the direction they want to go. And then they, all they have to do is keep flipping that script and you can see it again. They do it again in the eighties. Then they do it again in the nineties. Think about all these players, you know, Pearl Jam didn't happen to start and get really big right at the end of the eighties. No, no, no. That was still the time of hair metal, butt rock. No, we had to wait till ninety ninety one to get Pearl Jam out there to kick off the grunge movement with Nirvana. <clears throat> And we've already done the work to show the tie over in the in the same weird way that grunge is like maybe a little more updated version of punk rock. There are two seminal albums that mark the decade that had punk rock and the decade that had grunge. And they're both named the same. It's never mind the bullocks or bollocks, as the English like to say, for the sex pistols in the original punk movement. And then it's never mind spelled slightly different. Um, than in the Sex Pistols album. You can see what's going on here. It's just they're rehashing the same ideas. And so what actually happened is we went through the 60s, which was a weird culture, into the 70s, which was a unique culture, into the 80s, which was a hyper-artificial but unique culture that was going to be leveraged for nostalgia like almost no other decade. And then all of a sudden we get to the 90s and we're going right back to the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. We're going to redo a version of punk rock that's just been done. And this is part of the social engineering ploy that ensures variety is removed from a system. And I've done a lot of work to show people, go look at the color of cars is always a prime example of variety being removed from a system so that it can be socially engineered. Right. So anyway, uh, what else do you want to go over with the science fiction thing? We still have a long ways to go on today's episode. Well, there was a lot of sci-fi that we didn't cover, and I saw comments of people saying, why didn't you cover this or why didn't you cover that, like Lovecraft? Um, The truth is there's only so much time in a lifetime, Um, and this was, for me, probably close to three years worth of research piled into one episode where parts of it had been used for other things. But we didn't include a lot of things. And we did mention Philip K. Dick, which is a whole psyop on its own. It kind of seems like like there's no way to unravel and understand the truth about that. And as we mentioned, I think Radio Free Albemuth, which is attributed to Dick, may tell the story there. Hard to know. But if you go back to before the total utter control of all broadcast journalism to things like the original Twilight Zone... It's a whole other thing going on there. Um, Some of those programs still hold up today, the old black and white Rod Serlings, and he's credited with writing a lot of it. But the big difference between then and now is that's all story-driven. I guess we could call it sci-fi. Oh, sure. Uh, it is, yeah, it, it's, it's yeah it, it, it is a version of science fiction, I suppose, but it's more story-driven. It doesn't rely on fancy camera shots, special effects, CGI, explosions, Uh, repeating machine guns, grenades, all the things that they rely on now to tell a story and try to keep your attention. Um, A good example of that would be one of the worst films that I've seen in recent memory that I couldn't even sit through was Aquaman. Um, Unbelievable, just like a manic assault on your senses of how much color and movement can we throw into a single frame. So when we go back to those old versions, it's almost like you can see the point at which Tavistock and the studios and everybody said, okay, Rod Serling, those were fun stories you were telling, but now we're going to do something else. I mean, what do you think, Jason? That's just a, that's a personal observation that I have. I don't know if you agree with it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I, I had something I wanted to say about Dick. Oh, oh, I remember this, before this slips my mind again. I actually looked into Dick a while ago when we were talking about it. Do you remember me saying I couldn't find enough to do a full program, but I did find some documentation on it. Um, 
what what it was is some other folks had looked into it as well and they had done some uh, FOIA requests and the FBI did look into him because apparently there was a lot of drug stuff going on around him and <clears throat> the general consensus was that he was kind of harmless but he did have a lot of people kind of hanging out sort of like a leftover of the hippie days in the 70s with a lot of drugs going on and he was kind of out of his mind a lot of times and uh, he had well, multiple that's... wives and things like that like th basically he was kind of a little uh, emotionally unhinged yeah, um, but, you know, look what S. Frog is saying. This is case in point. For a mind that grew up where something like the original Twilight Zones, which are wholly story-driven, there's almost no budget in the sets at all. Right. Um, the entirety of the effort is in the story, in the telling of the story, and shooting with whatever set you can put together. Um, that's a more common-sense, down-to-earth, slowed-down, mellowed-out mind. Um, for someone of my generation to get into Aquaman is, I mean, it, it's overwhelming. But you see, the children have been conditioned into this. It's like DLive. Right now, we're streaming on DLive, but I, I can't leave that on my desktop. All that kind of flashing gifts. It reminds me of a CD version of Vegas, and it's hypnotizing. I can't stand it. Um, all these gifts and colors just constantly flashing at you. Um, so I think this really shows the switchover, the kind of programming that we've all come through, where people almost expect that level of color and movement in every single frame at this point. Absolutely. Now, as far as the Twilight Zone, you could also include some of the other programs at the time, the Outer Limits and all that. Right. you got to consider that back in these days that we're talking about, most of that stuff the reason why they can remaster it and make it look good these days is because it was shot on 35 millimeter film. A lot of it, which was expensive in general, but they didn't have digital yet. It's, right. it's a different world today where you can do shot after shot after shot, take after take after take and cobble it together later. However you like, because you're shooting on digital and it doesn't cost you anything other than the time, whether or not you want to put in or not. When you're talking about these shows like the twilight zone, not having a lot of a budget, they still had to have a somewhat of a budget just because of the, the the sheer apparatus required and how much uh, film are you going through and all that kind of thing. So yes, it, it definitely cost money, and um, special effects obviously weren't <laughs> like like what they would even be in the seventies or eighties, and you had no choice but to rely on story and strong acting. And a lot of actors, of course, will be theater actors, especially more so in those days. That was another big thing that actually helped prop up the early Doctor Who was very strong casting choices in the lead to be able to carry it on screen with, with some of the worst effects you've ever seen because they just didn't give them the budget to, to have anything. But again, well, it was story, talking... story driven again. That's, again, that's a absolutely. key, key point absolutely. is there's actually a story to tell. Look at Star Wars. Prime example. Story to tell the first time. The further you get away from the first one, there's really no story. Or if there is, it's not really effectively being told. Um, all these other things are going on. And by the way, I would point out again to S-Frog, um, remember the work that I did when I was showing that the brainwaves of a human being under the influence of habitual TV is identical to an opiate user? Um, we went all through the brainwaves, what's doing it? One of the mechanisms that was not well-researched, which I did on my own, is what I call the quick cut. And I knew it because I'd been editing video since the mid-90s. Um, the quick cut is a thing. Whenever you see a quick cut on anything, what you're seeing is someone doesn't want your brain to have enough time to look at that carefully and figure out what's going on. But when a quick cut keeps coming, one quick cut after another, and I mark a quick cut at three seconds or less, your brain doesn't have enough time to lock onto it, to decide, do I like that? Do I care for it? That's how they get you in the opiate state. So when you come to a movie like Aquaman, it is the equivalent of about 100 quick cuts in every frame. So for an hour and a half or two hours or however long it is, you are just barraged with the equivalent of many, many quick cuts in each frame. Um, and I would love to see research on the brainwaves of a young person under the influence of Aquaman because I'd like to know what it's doing. I never watched that one, although, of course, I saw the previews and it. It was busy, as are it's a lot of them. It's the worst, maybe the worst movie that I can ever remember attempting to watch. Endgame is kind of like that, too. I mean, yeah, it looked great, but goodness gracious, it was so busy. I've only ever watched those once because it's just like, eh, okay, I saw it. You know, it was. I actually prefer the uh, the Marvel movies if I'm going to watch them. I want to see the ones that are more story-driven on, on singular 
or just one or two characters because I find them more interesting than trying to cram so much into one picture. Well, there's another thing that's gone on where the normalization of people who were reasonably like very few people are aware of the rules that were in place for violence on TV. Back in the day, way back in the day when I was young, uh, you could show someone get shot by a gun, but you couldn't show the gun in the same frame and you couldn't show blood. Eventually, it got to the point where there was like this time limit where you could show the gun and the person being shot in the same frame. As time went on, if I had to guess, I think it's the 70s, but I'm just guessing they started to get to the point where they could show the blood. Now let's fast forward to where we are. A movie like John Wick will show you, I don't know, 20, 30 headshots in just a minute or two. And you're seeing the splatter, the gore, all of it. Um, and you can see how this medium is being used towards a goal in the. But what this does to a person who's invested in these things is it destabilizes your adult mind. It destabilizes your ability to have common sense and to exercise sound judgment. Because anyone who can sit there and watch headshot after headshot and watch someone be beat up so badly that they wouldn't get up after the first 30 seconds of it, never mind watching it go on for two hours. Um, and this is part of the agenda. And it ties in lock, stock and barrel with what we were talking about in sci-fi. This is like the underbelly dirty side, how violence is implemented and how things like quick cuts are implemented to achieve a goal. Uh, Mark W., thank you for the one British pound. Shout out to you. Thanks so much. Um, Cheers. As far as, as like quick edits and quick cuts and things like that, it's a difference. It's it's kind of like what I call the, the YouTube generation, although it's been going on for quite some time now, uh, way back into the 2000s. Editing in general has changed drastically. You don't see a lot of these drawn-out, longer scenes in anything anymore, almost like you're watching a play. That's more how television used to be, because obviously if you're going to have cuts and camera jumps, you need to have more cameras. Cameras cost money. In the older days, you're talking about more film. So longer scenes, a lot more lines and things like that that the actors have to learn. Very different approach to how things now where uh, the cameras are reasonably affordable, especially to a major studio. So they can have three, four, five jumps going around. And uh, a lot of times you're only reading a couple lines at a time and they might do multiple takes of that and they're, ah, more emotion, cut, cut, cut. And they're jumping back and forth like crazy. It's, it's that kind of thing. And it, it's <clears throat> contributing to this whole the manicness of, of uh, watching 30 seconds of a video and you're bored and jumping onto the next one. It's contributing to all of that. It's, it's just destroying uh, the attention span. It's not just the attention span. It's actually the quality of the product if there ever was such a thing. Um, and I can't harp enough about the difference between a time when the things that were shot on film, on real film, real film exists. You can hold it in your hand. When you're pointing at a mountainscape and shooting a mountainscape on real film, you do things that exist in the world. Today, that's not true any longer. The mountainscape you're looking at was made in a computer. It has no existence in reality, and the film doesn't exist. You're balancing electrons on the head of a pin. It's called digital filming. Um, so your mind knows the difference, I'm here to tell you. My mind knows the difference. If you don't believe there is a difference go back and watch a film that i use all the time because it's a great example lawrence of arabia as a matter of fact if i'm not mistaken sometime this month lawrence of arabia is going to play again on uh, the turner classics which i keep an eye on that because that is a barometer of what's going on in the world they're doing oscar films but i noticed it was listed i don't remember when point is is that was all shot on real film which is a tangible actual thing that existed in the world and it's shooting parts of the world that existed they are real and so that's the first disconnect but then when you come up to things like aquaman where maybe the actor is real and all that and actually probably not much the actor we've come to another threshold and i think people are going to start to have to come to terms with it with the next terminator movie which jason just showed me pretty quick here there aren't going to be any actors because they're going to have digitally scanned all the ones anyone cares about um, which is proven by Norm from Cheers showing up in a pizza commercial now. Um, <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger coming back to do a movie as if he was 30 again. 
um, uh, versions of this. We went back and forth on The Hobbit and Legolas. Um, I had initially thought that he was CGI'd in, but I think what actually happened is they needed to make him look younger, so it's a bit more like the deep fake. The point I'm making is we are quickly headed to a time where not only will the environment be fake, the, the medium called a camera that captured it will have no existence in reality because there's no film in the camera. You're talking about electrons balanced somewhere, um, and the actors that are being filmed won't exist anymore. They'll just be derived uh, from body scans, or they'll make up new ones. Uh, really, maybe the beginning of that was Max Headroom, uh, but there was a real actor behind Max Headroom, too. Yeah, yeah, I've actually seen that dude in a bunch of stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting, we were chatting yesterday, in fact, uh, regarding this, and that actors are going to have to, at some point, start signing away full rights to their appearance their their mannerisms their voice their uh, anything to do with their likeness because as this technology keeps on progressing at some point it may be they walk into a booth the the computer does a full scan and you're like thank you very much <laughs> well I'm, I'm i can i can address that i've said for a long time that from my point of view for the majority of the big stars we ever see what you're looking at is fame on loan the day that a person quits being Joe Nobody and becomes Joe Rockstar or Sally Movie Star, the day that individual crosses that threshold, they've been made a different level, almost like a king or a queen in a way. They can get on any jet they want. They can check into the most expensive hotel room. They don't need a passport. Everyone in the world knows who they are. They've been given almost like royalty for a period of time. And I maintain to this day, David Bowie had to give it back. Prince had to give it back. Everyone has to give it back. It's on loan. If that assumption, which is backed by a lot of research, is correct, and I would bank that I'm not far off if I'm if I'm missing it all. But here's the point I would make. When Prince quits being Joe, whatever the hell his name was, does he own that persona? And I would suggest to you he doesn't. And I would suggest to you that was what the whole prince the guy formerly known as prince now is some unpronounceable symbol was him pushing back against the fact that he did not own his identity or control his life um and i think that's what you're looking at so when you get up to arnold schwarzenegger doing a full body scan full voice print um does schwarzenegger own schwarzenegger or is that a persona and I would suggest to you that when they went under contract to do all those things, the, the studio must have owned all the rights and likenesses of that character or that the person playing that character could come back and sue him at some point. Right. Stands to reason. And such things have happened uh, with the gentleman who played George McFly in the first Back to the Future and then wasn't involved with two and three. And, and that became a big old thing. Uh, by the way, Graham. Uh, thank you for the 20 British pounds. He says, thanks for being you. Thank you. That's very cool of you. Hey, yeah, we hit over 400 so on the uh You on know the what? I, I noticed someone, I didn't want to cut you off, but I forgot. I was watching it go by as I was running my jaw here. Someone mentioned um, Akira Kurosawa. Um, back in the day when I had become disillusioned with, uh, with Hollywood back in the 80s, I became a fan of foreign films. To me, they felt more authentic, less contrived, less programmy which is kind of true on some levels and kind of not true on others. And Kurosawa is a bad example because later on he teams up with Hollywood. But some of the early Kurosawa works make the point. The power of those films is they feel tactilely real. It looks like you're in a real Japanese village. It looks like you're in a place that exists in this world. But not only that, the storyline is there to back it up. So it might be the difference between some dude painting a, a an oil painting and some dude painting a Rembrandt. There's a difference in the quality there, right? And that's what I'm pointing out here. Um, and for you know, it was literally a decision I made in about I could almost put it because I remember it. Uh, it was before I went into the Marine Corps. I would put it at about 86 or 87. Um, I was already disillusioned with Hollywood and I was going after all these foreign films and the more obscure they were, the more enjoyment I derived from them personally and later come to find out that a lot of them, you know, are in the same vein, just maybe not up to the same level. But um, there's all that. I wanted to mention it, Jason, because I saw someone mentioning Kurosawa. Oh, well, by the way, that's a direct uh, that's what Lucas directly took for the original Star Wars. He took the movie and then just kind of 
change it over until it finally was different enough that he could do Star Wars. But uh, there was a point I wanted to make when we were talking about uh, film and all that. Uh, big difference with the same director, and that would be uh, Peter Jackson. When he did the original Lord of the Rings, which is almost 20 years ago at this point, getting close, I, I believe Fellowship of the Ring came out in 2001, and then 10-plus years later he did The Hobbit. When he was going into the Lord of the Rings, just to show you how the mindset <clears throat> changed, he everything, of course, was shot on film. Digital cameras were just starting to be a thing, but everything was done right. on super high-quality film. Those films are gorgeous to look at even today. And his mentality that he was very open about was, I want everything to be practical effects as, as much as possible to try and capture this world. And the only things that will be CGI is what is impossible to still serve the material. Obviously, when you're creating stuff that's, that's coming from Tolkien, it, you're going to have some fantastical things that can't be done with puppeteering and, and makeup and all that. But his mentality was do as much as real as possible because it looks better and only use the CGI when it's absolutely necessary. Jump ahead 10-odd years to The Hobbit, and he's shooting on digital at 48 frames a second. If I, if I, might, I might be wrong about this, but if I remember correctly, when I had first seen about it, they were going to shoot it very differently. Um, I'll double-check that, whether it was on film or not, but I remember them talking about how they wanted to shoot it 48 frames per second instead of 24 frames per second, giving it kind of like a hyper-real sort of thing. And I think technically you could do that on film or digital, but I'll double check that because I don't want to put the wrong. Information well, we, out there. we we can address that. And by the way, welcome Wayne McCroy. Sorry to pop in there. Um, oh, no way. You know, you could almost equate, maybe not one to one, but in the same kind of divisive idea, the frame rate that a film is running with the hertz rate of a television. Whenever you see the hertz rate, go look at the back of your television. And by the way, when I was young, they didn't call it hertz. They called it cycles. If you're talking about electricity, you typically said 60 cycles per second. Um, now they call it hertz. Words have meaning. They'll tell you it's a dude's name, whatever. Not going there. Words have meaning. Now they call it hertz like every other fear-porn thing in this world. If you go look at the hertz rate on the back of your TV, whatever that number is, if it's 100 hertz, that means your TV is flickering in your face 100 times a second. Some of the hertz rates on televisions now go up over 200. I was recently at an old friend's house that had televisions where the screen curves. I couldn't stand to be in the same room with it. it. I don't know what it was about it, but the hertz rate was over 200. And colors and just, ah, it was mesmerizing. It was making me sick to my stomach. I had to get away from it. Point I'm making here is when Jason's talking about the first round for Jackson, Theoretically, 24 films or frames per second was the old classic film when you were using real film. It's usually in the neighborhood of 24 frames a second to which get Which is what I shot smooth... Shoot the Moon on, by the way. Right, which is what we use for Shoot the Moon. But the point I would make is you're, if you're up in the 40s um, and then you've gone digital, uh, you're, you're doing the opiate to the mind thing. You're doing the mesmerization. You're doing, you're doing this thing that the world requires all important corporations to do right now and that thing is to get away from what's provably real in nature and get towards what's provably artificial and has no existence in nature this is the gender bending this is the fear porn this is everything this is 9-11 this is jfk this is prince this is aquaman this is everything in this world right now which is why i feel most people appreciated episode 200 because sci-fi is like a crystal time ball that shows where we came from, what it was designed to do, how it got zero respect, and how they programmed the living bejesus out of all of us till we got up to John Wick shooting people in the head a hundred times a minute. <laughs> so, yeah, I was right. It was shot on a red, red Epic camera, which is a, a very high-end digital uh, for the time. This is... Uh, going back to 2012 and it was shot at 48 frames per second. So again, just right off the bat, different mentality with, um, with Peter Jackson. And of course, if you've seen the Hobbit films, those, that trilogy, super amounts of CGI in comparison to the Lord of the Rings. So just a change in mindset, just in one gentleman who happens to be a very good director, but very different approaches. Well, if I had to, you know, when I was younger, uh, I was all about Lord of the Rings when I was in like seventh grade. I read The Hobbit probably right about the right age group because The Hobbit really is a children's book. Um, and I was so impressed with it. My father had given it to me. So by the time I was in junior high, I was burning through Lord of the Rings. Uh, the first movies he made 
feel like they're in the ballpark of what Lord of the Rings wanted to be. Hobbit is not in the same universe as the book. Um, nothing about it. It's all hyper Hollywooded out. I don't know what to call it, um, but it's departed wholesale from this idea of a bucolic world called Middle Earth where hobbits don't like machines, basically. Oh, yeah. By the way, there's a giant named Bill <laughs> who picks his nose, you know, but but now we've come up to this whole other kind of dark side of the force thing uh, going on there. And it's, you know, I, I'll, I'll never understand it. If I was a director, you couldn't convince me to shoot on digital nothing. I would push with every core of my fiber to shoot on real film. Um, and I don't understand how all those kind of powerful directors, which should probably be able to, you know, pick their own trail to go down without asking permission. How have they forgotten the quality of what came before and why are they so willing to go far from what's helpful? And I would suggest that they're bought into the agenda. Yeah, uh, I, I would assume so. Well, I mean, man, you just don't know. When you're as successful as Peter Jackson was, you would think that he could direct his own thing, but I, I just don't know. I mean, maybe it had to do with the giant battle he wanted to do at the end to give it a, a certain look, but I personally thought it looked very video gamey. Like, the first yeah. Hobbit one wasn't that bad, actually. It, it was the second one where they're literally being chased around and chasing a giant dragon played by Benedict Cumberbatch. They did screen capture with him, uh, whatever they call that, the motion capture. And then in the third one, they had the giant battle, and it's just insane. It's just over the top. I've only ever watched that one yeah, once. Yeah, but, but even, that's, even that's bass awkward. So you have these really long ones called Lord of the Rings, and each one of those gets one film. Then you have this really short one written for children, and you make three films out of it. It's all backwards. Well, it I think, no I think that was to, to, to soak it for money. I, it originally, when that was announced way back when, they said it was going to be two films, and then it got turned into three movies. Yeah, man. Someone was too fond of the uh, Halfling's Leaf, I think. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's just not, you know, it's all out the window. And by the way, uh, for my part, you know, I remember the first one came out uh, when I was working at an internet start out, and we went, and I thought, wow, the look... The look is pretty close to what you would expect. But they they went downhill for me after that. But in a way, the books kind of did too. Because every time they got to Mordor, I was trying to plow through it so I could get back to Lothlorien. <laughs> but, but looking <laughs> nice in reverse now, well, looking in reverse now, uh, you kind of understand what's driving all of it. Um, and, you know, the new Tolkien movie is trying to force your mind to view the supposed author of all that work and the way they want you to view it um, in the in the center of the masters of the universe. You know, anything coming out of Cambridge is masters of the universe, isn't it? Uh, you would think so, more than likely. Yeah, I, you would know so. You can, <laughs> you know, you can just see by the, the people who have been so powerful in this world coming out of Oxford and Cambridge and, and these types of places. Um, I have no idea what the cost is, but I'm guessing the average person in London can't get accepted or afford Cambridge any more uh, than I can go to Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. I'm sorry. Poons. Poons? Poons. Uh, yes. Poons. Hmm. But the, uh, you know, the thing with film, with the, the digital takeover, I don't know if a lot of folks know this, uh, Kodak was going under because they were one of the prime suppliers to Hollywood for however long. They were starting to go down, and one of the things that saved it, and this is about the only good thing I can say about the first Disney Star Wars movie, is that they ordered a crap ton of 35mm film because they they didn't want to shoot it on digital. They wanted to shoot it on, on uh, film to kind of give it a, a more of a reminiscent look of the originals, so... Well, there's there's a story there's a story with Kodak too, who's uh, second Paul McCartney, at least second Paul McCartney's wife. That's you know Eastman. She's Eastman Kodak. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all it's all a big it's all a big game. Um, that's that's one of the key points from episode 200. It was a bullet point that you put together showing um, that the people had gotten so rich in the oligarchy that they just simply bought what they wanted, and this is what we're talking about. It seems now that the corporations that are at that size, and everybody knows what I mean, the Walmarts, the Kodaks, the, you know, just those massive corporations at a size 
are all working from the same playbook, it would seem, um, because there's no common sense in it anymore. You know, it used to be in the 60s, if you were the CEO of a corporation and had power and you saw some film you really didn't want your children influenced by, you'd be vocal about it. Get this trash off the screen. Those days are gone. Nobody does that anymore. And now what you see is Walmart's backing John Wick now. You can come get your bloody bullet snacks for $5 a handful. Um, you know, it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's common sense out the window. And by the way, words do have meaning. Does anyone know what Wick means? Uh, there's the riddle for the night. But yeah, Jason, it's insane how far we've come, how quickly. Yeah, now now some, because of, of that kind of revival thing, some directors have gone back to using film at times over, over digital, but it's the same thing. It, it comes down to budget. If someone gets the budget to shoot on film, great, good for them, but, you know, it's just so much cheaper to shoot digital, whether you're using Aries or Reds is the two most common. Yeah, but you see, that, that that's exactly my point, though. Um, this is what Spielberg helped to destroy with the idea of the blockbuster. At what point did anything that matter become about how many butts are going to be in the seats and how many shekels can we collect? That's the only thing that matters. There used to be, all the way up into the 80s to some degree, this idea that this is quality. Building here, um, our hearts and souls are in it. It's like this painting that we want to be the best thing we can make. That, that's gone. Those days are gone. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. So it's a systemic push to move beyond, you know, they don't give a damn. They buy all their crap from Walmart. It's all junk made in China that'll last one or two years. That is a sharp departure from what America was. We were just talking about my American-made Meade telescope, made in the 90s. That thing is still a tank and ready to do what it did then. Now if I go buy a Meade, it's made in Tijuana by a Chinese guy, I think, owns it, and it's junk. Um, this is what we're talking about. The whole system, whether it be about quality, value, morals, all of it, pushing, pushing, pushing further down the road all the time. Uh, there's a quote from uh, Samuel Goldwyn, uh, one of the early great big uh, Hollywood moguls, and I can't remember the exact quote because it was kind of long, but the, the general idea behind it was he used to go to watch movies, but he have, would have his back to the screen and watching the audience for reactions because he, he felt that uh, if the film failed, it wasn't it wasn't the audience's fault. It was their fault for not catering to the audience po uh, properly because it was all about selling them the tickets. It, they wanted to make money. They, they had to make films should not be bad. And it's like the complete antithesis to the way things are done now. Right. Um, and I saw people commenting to be to be clear, the feminine of that word would be Wicca. Um, so now you know what Wicca is. It's the mask. It'd be equivalent to wizard uh, as one of its meaning. But everyone rightly points out that it is also the root for wicked. Um, but anyhow, yeah, I mean, it's case in point, Jason. There seems to be some overarching control system that either maybe people get in, it's like the boards we talk about, the CFR or other things, where everyone's on board to do the wrong thing. And it's astounding because I always sit here and I think if I was the CEO of that corporation and I had children, I wouldn't do it. I would be sitting at that boardroom saying, no, this is pornographic, this is trash, this is anything, too violent, whatever. But it's not what we see. We see it just totally creeping down the road more and more. And all the people in positions of power, which is pretty much corporate right now, um, corporations are the real powers, um, they're all down with it. They're all funding it. I mean, is there going to come a day when Walmart's pushing, you know, John Wick popcorn? We're not far from that. You know, that wouldn't surprise me uh, with, with new creamy topping. Yeah, it's, a, you know, instead of your, your new red butter sauce, of course. <laughs> well, we want to get a couple minutes left here. Shall we uh, talk about what's coming up this week? Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, obviously, we just finished episode 200 on science fiction, and 201 is going to be with Marty Leeds. Uh, we decided to have him back because, you know, he's kind of brilliant. And uh, we had a great chat with him. We started off talking about a lot of the uh, 
idiosyncrasies that actually are in the truth movement in general with all the different figures and all that. And uh, Marty, of course, has his own take on it. And I'd, I'd heard, I'd just heard a, a live stream he had done talking about it. And I brought that up to him and he, he seemed to find that amusing. But uh, then, of course, it's Marty Leeds. So we went into numbers and, and him and Crow went back and forth about uh, the validity of zero being a real thing or not a real thing. It's not a real thing. Right. <laughs> but I'll talk, Sorry, Marty. The ball's in Sorry, your Marty. Court. I can't let you comment right now, but Marty, zero is not a real thing. Right. But anyway, that was an interesting chat. And I, I believe you got your point across to him. And I think he still was looking at it from a. As I was looking, listening to you guys, I was kind of seeing like what Marty was trying to say was almost looking at it from a multifaceted kind of thing. But he came at it from a different viewpoint than I think is crucial to consider. His viewpoint is, is we have this system and there's all these things we can use and zero is one of those things. That's not wrong, but that's not the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, you can use it all day long. We do it every day. We write the number 60 or 70. There's your zero. We're using it. Um, my point is that as an idea, it has no counterpart in nature. There is no zero in reality. Now, if you want to go back further to maybe when zero was supposed to be a placeholder, now that's a different thing altogether. Because what they're saying is, is this symbol is just holding this place open. And to me, to my mind, that's an acceptable idea. But when you start getting into negative numbers and things like that, they, they have no existence in the natural world. I think Marty, I don't know, I'd have to listen back. Did you feel like he walked away opposed to the idea or that he considered it? Uh, I don't. I do think he considered it, but I'm. See, I think he was looking at it from multiple angles, whereas you were just looking at it from a very specific point of view. Marty was kind of examining it from different ways, which is what he does with numbers. It's not right. One of the things that makes math boring as hell in the traditional sense is that they're very. It's very cut and dry. Marty doesn't do that. He looks at things from different ways, and that's why he's able to make things make sense and kind of interesting in that way. The dude, what, what the guy can pull off in his head off the cuff is insane, you know, working square roots and just burning numbers. And not only that, um, Zach Hubbard used to do a similar thing, uh, being instantly able to correlate 175 with all these other things that it would relate to. Uh, my mind doesn't view numbers that way. Uh, to me, they're symbols. They don't really have, <laughs> per se, numerical value, which is absolutely why when I look for the patterns, I, I deal with one through nine. Um, and you do need someone like Marty Leeds if you want to get up to 500 or, you know, all the 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 three-digit or four-digit numbers that he manipulates. Uh, you're never going to see me doing that because numbers, I don't view numbers in the same way as, as people who have the math skills like that. To me, they're symbolic. Um, and to be honest, if I want to multiply numbers, I need to get my wife to help me. <laughs> well, since we're almost out of time here, I would like to ask folks if there are any bigger shows that uh, Crow and or myself could go on We'd like to find some new stuff just to try and reach a wider audience and, and just keep that discussion going bigger and bigger. Uh, obviously, the, what we do week after week does grow it, it, slowly but surely. At least it, it does appear to be. But there are a lot of people questioning a lot of things out there. And uh, it's obvious. Like I saw a comment that I had to delete from my channel uh, where they said, I don't understand what, what's going on. This is the second time I've tuned in. It's just a bunch of people talking. It's not about Saturn at all. And I was like, oh, good grief. It's like, <laughs> like it was gotta, really see, like, like face palm you know, kind of situation. It's like, you got to always right click the avatar and load it in a new window because that smacks of a sock puppet channel. Well, and I <laughs> that, don't mean to be rude about it, but I blocked them. I deleted the comment and blocked them because either they're just, um, Come on. you know, it's, it's either that or it's like, okay, so you've never heard of, I mean, I, I'm not that big of a name, but I'm pretty sure most people have heard of Crow Triple Seven at this point. Dude, um, that's that's either a bot or it's akin to Spicoli walking in and say, hey, man, there's no birthday party for me here. I mean, come on. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it was that kind of thing. I, I think most people know who Crow Triple Seven is. I mean, even George Norrie, who's kind of mainstreamy at this point, at least had an inkling of who you were. No, he he acted like he had an inkling, but then he dropped the ball of wax in the middle of the thing. He said, what was it, 20, 2012? I remember watching your stuff back in 2012. I was like, ah, see, 
<laughs> yeah, that was that was actually that was quite in, amusing. That was in the episode. You want to know something? Of all the episodes I've done recently, I feel like that's the one where I threaded the needle. You know, because you're in this real mainstreamy place that feels kind of foreign to where where I normally am. But on that episode, I feel like I threaded the needle. Which, by the way, members have access to that. Right. Uh, Bob offered for us sure to come back anytime, which we should uh, we should definitely do. Uh, someone else suggested the Kev Baker show. By the way, don't just throw no- names at us. I mean, you can, but if you happen to have direct contact with anybody or know a way to contact them, because the bigger the shows, the harder they are to reach. Um, it's it's not easy. Like once people start getting to like a celebrity level status, they start walling themselves off, and I understand why. Because even I get the crazies saying stupid crap. I can only imagine somebody 10 times the size. So yeah, just the emails alone. It just, it's, it's overwhelming. You want to know, here's an example of how overwhelming it gets in the last week. You know, the old black and white clip of the elder gentleman back in the sixties, uh, on ABC or CBS, wherever it was telling everyone that he believes the moon is plasma. I have had that clip verbatim sent to me something like 25 times this week alone. Not kidding, yeah, man. No, I, and believe th- and that's, I believe it. And that's actually not a problem because I've already seen it and I can say, thank you, I've already seen it. But think of all the people who send an email with, oh, you've got to see this clip and you're all right. You open up the clip, it's two hours. You're like, what universe do you think we're working in here? Um, you know, I get 200 emails on the slowest day of the week, sometimes multiples of that. So I understand. And that's the point Jason's making some of these bigger shows. Um, it's just hard to get an email through. Yeah. Uh, there are some bigger shows that I would love to get, uh, him, he, he crow or, or both of us on, but anyway, uh, that's our time. Anything we want to get out here in the last minute here? Um, well, we have a- Athen Comente. Um, I went and, uh, Booked him a while ago, and we recorded the episode. I wanted to get Athen Comente back, who's a sidereal sky watcher, which means he basically looks to see what is visibly there and runs with what is visibly provably there. That's how I describe sidereal. I wanted to get him on because there's a lot of astronomical events, and a lot of people are starting to take an interest in filming the sky, partially because so many people have cameras other than their cell phones now that are decent. Even some of the cell phones are getting to be quite impressive for the quality of the the video. But filming the sun at riser set, these are big, uh, big deals. And if you do it, please, please listen to what I'm going to say next. If you see something unusual, you have to film for a few minutes. But more so, you need to zoom, you need to pan the camera a little bit, not the whole time, just once or twice, so that you've done it. So you can rule out lens flare and prove that what's being filmed actually is an event that's being filmed. And if you can, uh, the exposure. On my Twitter, uh, a young lady, I think she's in her 30s, was flying from London to India and films what appears to be two sons. And she'd been following for some time. She did it all right. She was stuck in a plane. But nonetheless, she panned to a different window and back. She zoomed in and out and she set her exposure proving that what she was looking at was a filmed event doesn't give us all we want but that's a lot to help with the other thing is um all the people who are starting to film with telescopes post what you do to the internet um i think it's critically important because people take a big interest in that kind of thing and if we could have thousands and thousands and thousands of people with cameras the secrets that befuddle us now probably wouldn't last for very long yeah, I agree. I actually, I was trying to shoot the, some some stuff myself. Uh, was that yesterday or the day before? Day before, I think. And I saw two bright spots in, in the sky as the sun was setting, but it was so cloudy I couldn't tell. But it looked like it could be in the same spot. You never know. But I, I couldn't. It, it's not anything that could possibly be validated in any way, shape, or form. But it gave, yeah, gave me yeah, help the, to keep looking. So I'm going to give you advice that I don't follow myself because I don't carry a smartphone per se. My phone's a dumb phone. Well, I consider it a smartphone. I consider smart things dumb things now. But um, there are apps that you can get for your cell phone that if you point it at the sky, it tells you what's in the sky. Every person in the world that likes to use 
smartphones and apps should have one of those so that you can point at the sun and it will say, hey, Venus is right above it. So, you know, oh, there's two bright objects there or all the emails I get. There was something bright in the sky. All they had to do was point their phone at it and say, that's Jupiter. Um, everyone in the world should own one of those apps. And for if no other reason is because most of us are addicted to GPS and we can't even find our way in our own town anymore. I remember David Weiss, you know, I said this and David Weiss said, I know I've gotten so bad. I can't find anything without my GPS. You want to know something? I just got a new car. Haven't used the GPS once. Ain't gonna um, <laughs> to make a fine point. But if you start to learn the sky and you ever get stuck somewhere in the world, you'll be able to find your way out because you can find north, south, east, and west. All right. So join us this Thursday. We will be releasing uh, the Marty Leeds episode. Wayne and I, of course, will be doing uh, our usual weekly live stream here at the Secrets of Saturn channel. And that will be uh, 8 to 10 Central, which is my time. And uh, I guess that's it. Thank you, All right. everybody. Um, yeah, just so everybody knows, Rose does all the booking. Um, and there it is. Anything else, Jason? No, I think it's time. To say good. All right, let's let's make like a Canadian and get oot. Everyone have a good night. Cheers. See you Thursday. Is the enemy of knowing.